Hello, everybody, and thank you again for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care and the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is David Werho, and I am a pediatric cardiac intensivist at UC San Diego and Rady Children's Hospital San Diego. This week, we have the second episode in our series of Journal Club podcasts, which are presented by fourth-year fellows and sponsored by the PCICS fourth-year fellowship training program director work group under the Education Committee. Once again, we record the discussions of the Journal Club article as presented by the fourth-year fellow, but to protect the anonymity in a safe learning environment, we don't record the discussion of the fellows. Rather, we have a question-and-answer session summarizing the discussion at the end. As you know, all of the articles are linked in the podcast description. And because there are slides that accompany these presentations, PCICS members can access them by logging into the website and registering for supplemental materials for free. Just click the link at the top of the page on pcics.org forward slash podcasts. This week, our fourth year fellow presenter is Dr. Felicia Cyphers from the University of Alabama. She'll be presenting Sotolol versus Amiodarone for Postoperative Junctional Tachycardia After Congenital Heart Surgery by Rochelson et al., which was published in Heart Rhythm in March of this year. Um, thank you guys for the introduction. Uh, I'm Felicia Cyphers. I'm currently at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and gonna be talking today on a article about postoperative JET. So just starting off with a little bit of review. So JET uh, commonly occurs in the postoperative period that can also occur in a distinct primary idiopathic congenital JET that we won't talk about today. Um, just focusing on this article and the postoperative JET that we see in the CBICU. Um, so JET is an automatic tachycardia. It originates in the AV node or proximal his bundle with ventricular atrial dissociation or one-to-one retrograde conduction. The rate is usually greater than or equal to the atrial rate. And typically it's a narrow QRS morphology that looks like the patient's um, sinus QRS morphology. So post-op JET, we usually see in the first 24 to 48 hours after surgery, there is an increased risk of morbidity and mortality with JET. There's a longer length of mechanical ventilation, um, but JET usually is self, uh, self-resolving um, within about one week um, is kind of the natural history of JET, but the rapid heart rate and loss of AV synchrony can lead to decreased cardiac output, which in turn then can stimulate the adrenergic system and further increase heart rate. The incidence varies from 1% to 10%. So risk factors for JET, younger age, um, length of cardiopulmonary bypass time, certain surgeries, as well as electrolyte imbalances um, in the postoperative period. So looking at diagnosis, um, whenever we're trying to diagnose JET um, in the CDICU, you can look at a EKG as well as an atrial EKG. And I just show a couple examples. It's usually a gradual onset and offset. There is still rate variability in their QRS. Each QRS is preceded by his bundle depolarization. Um, this EKG that you can see here uh, shows postoperative JET in the limb leads with a rate of 190 uh, beats per minute. 
Um, and here's looking at a strip from a atrial lead EKG. So the atrial electrocardiogram from patient with JET demonstrating AV dissociation and uh, the red arrows indicate the P waves that you can see. So typical management for JET, um, you want to avoid hyperthermia, allow a level of hypothermia as long as your patient isn't bleeding and you can tolerate that, um, sedation with pain medicine as well as Presidex and then minimizing catecholamines. If all that is unsuccessful at um, uh, converting your JET or slowing down your JET rate uh, to be more hemodynamically tolerated, then you can use uh, temporary pacing wires, which restore the AV synchrony with pacing if the rate allows. If um, none of those things work or if the rate is so fast that you cannot um, hemodynamically get away with it, then that's when we reach for uh, medication therapy. And so this article looks at amiodarone versus sodalol. And so just going over those two uh, medications specifically. So amiodarone is a class three antiarrhythmic agent. It inhibits adrenergic stimulation. It has alpha and beta blocking properties. It affects sodium, potassium, and calcium channels, prolongs the action potential and the refractory period, and decreases your AV conduction in the sinus node function. Um, so diving into our article that we're going to talk about today. So um, like we stated earlier, this is a very recent publication published in uh, March of 2022. Um, Sodalol versus amiodarone postoperative jet after congenital heart surgery um, out of Texas Children's Hospital. So the article starts off, starts off with going over Sodalol's mechanism of action, um, reminding us that it's a racemic mixture of the D and L isomers. Uh, it is a beta blocker, and so it falls under the Vaughn Williams class uh, two and three, with predominantly being uh, Vaughn Williams class three. Uh, both isomers have um, class three antiarrhythmic effects. The L isomer is responsible for all the beta blocking activity, and the D isomer is responsible for potassium blocking. So the methods um, in this study, this was a retrospective review of all pediatric patients younger than five years, either received IV amiodarone or IV sololol for postoperative JET. All patients were repaired and treated at a single institution, Texas Children's Hospital, over a five-year period, which was from 2015 to 2020. Patients were excluded if they had previously received a different antiarrhythmic before their sodalol or amiodarone bolus, and that included preoperative boluses um, or antiarrhythmics used preoperative with the exception of Esmolol. So Esmolol was used in their um, cohort um, and it was not considered part of the exclusion criteria because of its frequent use for post-operative RV hemodynamics. Uh, the physiological data were collected from SickBay, the SickBay platform, which stores the bedside monitor data for large-scale interpretation. The values were all collected and averaged at 15 time second intervals. So they define antiarrhythmic success as a decrease in the jet rate to less than 170 beats per minute or a decrease by greater than 20% if that initial jet rate was less than 170 beats per minute within 24 hours and or conversion to sinus rhythm without an escalation of therapy. They define escalation of therapy as conversion to an alternative antiarrhythmic or surgical intervention such as ECMO. If a patient required multiple boluses of the same medicine or maintenance dosing of that antiarrhythmic, that was not considered escalation of therapy, that was considered monotherapy. And so those um, patients were included in this study. 
So moving on to table one. Um, so we'll take some time to look at this um, here. So table one has the patient characteristics. In the amiodarone group, there was 20 patients. In the sodalol group, there was 12, giving us a total cohort of 32 for our total N. 62% um, were in the IV amiodarone group and 38% in the sodalol group. In the entire cohort, the median age was 71 days and the median weight was 4.5 kilograms and 20 patients, so 63% were males. Um, Antiromantic therapy was initiated on the median postoperative day one and patients who received amiodarone were younger than the patients who received sodalol. And that was the only baseline characteristic that reached statistical um, significance of uh, the p-value. And so if you look at the chart, you can see that the um, amiodarone group was 36 and the sodalol group was 142, um, giving the p-value of 0.05. Um, everything else was not significant, um, but of note, it does look like, so esmolol use was in 40% of the amio group and 17% of the sodalol group and Presidex was widely used. So it was used in 92% um, overall. Um, so the types of congenital heart disease in this cohort, um, there was uh, some double outlet right ventricle, tetralogy of flow, AV septal defects, VSD, interrupted aortic arch with a VSD and um, some hypoplastic left heart syndrome. There was moderate to severe systolic dysfunction of the systemic ventricle documented by ECHO prior to antiarrhythmic administration in four patients, so 20% of the amio group and 33% in the sodalol group. Uh, Proceeding esmolol was found in eight patients, so 40% of the amio group and 17 of the sodalol group. So getting into how they dose their antiarrhythmics, um, so the AMEO group was most commonly given as a five milligram per kilogram bolus over one hour. There were a couple patients who received smaller boluses than that due to their level of hypotension and hemodynamic compromise. Um, and then multiple patients required um, more than one amiodarone bolus in a 24-hour period. So 15 of 20 patients required extra additional boluses with an average bolus count of 2.6 and a standard deviation of 1.7 on that. In addition, the maintenance amiodarone infusion was initiated in six patients, uh, so 30% of this cohort. Amiodarone was preceded by a calcium bolus in 95% of the patients, and um, the maintenance dosing was typically initiated as a continuous infusion of 10 milligram per kilogram per day. For the sodalol group, the bolus was given as a one per kilo bolus over one hour, and again, multiple boluses in that 24-hour period were required um, in five of the 12 patients, so 41%, with an average bolus count of 1.5. In addition to that, the extra boluses, maintenance sodalol was initiated in two patients, 17% of this um, total of 12 patients. And the maintenance dose was 120 milligram per meter squared per day and divided uh, doses Q8. So moving on to outcomes, they achieved um, antiromantic success uh, by their definition of lowering the heart rate to less than 170 or conversion to sinus rhythm in 75% of the amiodarone group and 83% of the sodalol group. You can see that the patients requiring multiple uh, boluses in the amiodarone group, like I said previously, was 2.6 um, 
And this total group was 1.5. It was close to being statistically significant, but not. Um, there were five treatment failures in the amiodarone group. Two required ECMO support, and two had breakthrough jet lasting greater than 48 hours, and one required reopening of the sternum, and that allowed slowing of the jet rate. There were two treatment failures in the sodalol group. Um, both patients were initially controlled with sodalol, but then had reoccurrence within 24 hours and were switched from sodalol to amiodarone therapy. Um, and then adverse effects, two patients in the amio group had their boluses discontinued due to hypertension and bradycardia, whereas no patients in the sodalol group had that happen. So looking at the hemodynamic effects um, table, and then there's a couple different graphs um, that this information is shown um, on my next couple of slides. Um, so looking at the baseline heart rate um, right prior to uh, bolus administration of either medicine, um, the amiodarone group, the heart rate was 170 beats per minute. In the sodalol group, it was 163, um, which was not significant. And then at the end of the bolus, um, which the bolus was considered time zero, um, at the end of the one hour bolus, the average difference was uh, minus nine beats per minute on the amiodarone group and minus 13 in the sodalol group. Um, and then you can see the systolic difference um, in the systolic blood pressure group, there was a statistical difference in the mean um, in the amiodarone group with a, um, a decrease in the systolic blood pressure by 3.6 millimeters of mercury, whereas there was really no difference in the sodalol group. Uh, there wasn't a difference in the mean blood pressure or the diastolic blood pressures uh, between either group. Um, so looking at this in the um, graphical representation that's in the paper, um, so this uh, shows it nicely. The amiodarone group is in red. And again, they were given the five mg per kg per hour, um, sorry, five mg per kg bolus over one hour. And the sodal group was given one mg per kg over one hour. And you can see at the um, time point of one hour at the end of the bolus that the sodal group had a decrease in their heart rate by 24 beats per minute. And the amiodarone group had a decrease uh, by eight beats per minute. Interestingly, over the 24-hour time collection, um, these differences um, kind of went away, and so they both achieved um, a similar heart rate uh, post-treatment in between the two groups, um, but the sodalol in the blue does have a faster decline. So looking at limitations of this study, obviously this is a pretty small sample size. There was 20 patients in the amiodarone group and 12 in the sodalol group. So hard to kind of detect any large scale differences in efficacy. And then it was retrospective and the comparison of the amiodarone versus sodalol groups were not randomized, allowing for some confounders with some possible selection bias. And we could see that there was definitely more younger patients in the amiodarone group. The amiodarone group did have more dosing variability with um, three patients receiving um, kind of half the standard typical bolus dose in that first hour rather than the typical five per kilo discussion. Compared with amiodarone, a sodalol bolus led to a faster improvement of the heart rate over the first 90 minutes, but the average heart rate was very similar between the two groups after a 24-hour period, and there was a statistically significant drop in the blood pressure of 3.6 after the amiodarone bolus, whereas there was no change in blood pressure after the sodalol bolus. And they did go on to mention in the article that some of their patients did have slower jet rates, but they went ahead and included those for completeness.
So the um, authors drew the conclusions that both IV amiodarone and IV sodalol are safe and effective treatment options. Rate control may be achieved faster with sodalol, and IV sodalol should now be considered a valuable additional treatment option for postoperative JIT. Before moving on to the Q&A and discussion portion of the Journal Club, I'd like to recognize our sponsor of this episode, Children's of Alabama. As a joint cooperative of Children's of Alabama and the University of Alabama at Birmingham, the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center of Alabama is a leader in comprehensive pediatric and adult congenital cardiac care for the people of Alabama and the southeastern United States. They celebrate multidisciplinary teamwork to provide the highest quality family-centered care, research and clinical innovation that translates into improved patient outcomes and safety, and prepare our future healthcare leaders via fellowship training. Their center includes 20 state-of-the-art CVICU rooms, four dedicated ECMO suites, and easy access to the UAB high-risk obstetric birthing suites and regional NICU. On average, they perform over 450 cardiac surgeries per year, including over 300 cases on bypass, approximately 10 transplants per year, greater than 700 cardiac catheterizations per year, including 100 EP cases and ablations, and greater than 15,000 2D and 3D echocardiograms per year, including over 600 transesophageal echoes and 250 fetal echocardiograms. The specialized cardiac support team includes advanced practice nurses, respiratory therapists, child life, social work, pharmacists, dietitian and speech, and occupational and physical therapists. Thank you to Children's of Alabama for sponsoring this episode. All right. So thank you, Felicia, for presenting that really interesting paper about JET and amiodarone versus sodalol. Um, this is always a very uh, hot topic whenever a patient in the ICU goes into JET. Uh, for our listeners, I'd like for you to summarize what the discussion was amongst the trainees after your talk about sort of how many institutions out there have a published JET protocol that they have accessible in their units? And then what did everybody say about sort of the antiarrhythmics, where they are on that protocol, what the antiarrhythmics of choice might be at certain places? Sure. Um, thank you so much for having me present today. Um, so first, uh, to answer your question, it seemed like there was only a couple of places that had a JET protocol for their CBICU um, units, specifically that dictate the antiarrhythmic therapy um, of choice. And second, most places, it seemed that most trainees were saying that they were using amiodarone as the first line agent, some of that being um, secondary to what kind of medications you have available from your pharmacy, as well as testing. Um, one thing that we do here at UAB is we do have the procainamide levels that come back very quickly instead of being a send out test. And so we actually opt for more procainamide over amiodarone. But I think that that's kind of the limiting step for a lot of places that are still using amiodarone. First line is that they don't have the procainamide levels available. And then the same thing for the IV sodol, since it's been um, kind of a newer addition to the treatment options for postoperative JET, there are some places who still do not have the IV sodol available to order. All right. And I think one other interesting thing that we didn't get time to talk about, but that we just have to bring up is... Um, is LV systolic dysfunction and the choice of antiarrhythmic in that patient population. Um, 
And I know that they, in the paper, there was not a significant difference in each cohort, you know, which of how many patients with severe LV dysfunction received amio versus sotalol. However, um, if you if you talk to people at Texas, um, it, it does seem like patients with severe systolic dysfunction are much less likely to receive sotalol. Um, so that's just an interesting thing. I think that's something that sort of as us as a practice um, across the country in cardiac ICU become more comfortable with sotalol and its side effect profile and its safety profile. Um, the ability to use it in patients with more dysfunction um, is going to increase over time. But that's just a teaching point for the fellows is um, it, it is somewhat of a challenge uh, when, when it comes to patient selection, especially in kids who are super sick and they have JED in the post-operative period and um, deciding if you don't happen to have a protocol or a drug of choice at your institution, what is the next step? What's the next antiarrhythmic agent? Obviously, consulting with your EP doctors is always really important, but um, there's just a lot of things that we have to consider in that, in that thought matrix. My last question for you is, uh, as you were reading this paper and, and putting your analysis together, was there anything that surprised you? Um, I think overall, um, kind of, it was a little bit surprising just the difference in age between the two groups. And I think that that was um, kind of an interesting caveat to interpreting the data. And then with that being said, it is kind of a very small sample size. And so I would love, you know, if this study were to be redone with kind of a bigger um, sample size to see if the same statistical conclusions kind of hold true. Yeah, that's a great observation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for presenting. I think our listeners and all the trainees are going to get a lot out of it. To all our listeners, once again, thank you for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts please visit our website, pcacs.org, where you can find more info about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.